All right, well, again, good morning. It is great to be together, to worship uh, together. Um, just so grateful for our praise team, just every Sunday, just leading us. Uh, in uh, thank you guys so much. Um, well, uh, if, if you're here for the first time, maybe to catch you up just a little bit, uh, or if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we are in a series on Romans. We took a little uh, two-week kind of break in the middle of that series to talk about something that the Apostle Paul brings up in Romans 1, um, uh, about sexuality and what the Bible has to say about that. Uh, if you missed that two-part series, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. Also, we had Sam Alberry here for a conference, which was phenomenal. If you weren't able to, uh, to be a part of that, we've posted on YouTube and on our podcast the audio and video from that. And just really encourage you to check that out. It was a really beautiful and compelling presentation of the gospel for a sexually broken world. And so I just want to encourage you for your own sake and also for the sake of friends and family. It's a great resource. Um, encourage you to check that out, again, both on YouTube and our podcast. But this week, we're going to jump back into Romans uh, and our rhythm with Romans. And so I want to invite you to grab a Bible and open it up to Romans chapter 2. That's where we are this morning, Romans chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat back near you. If you want to grab that or pull it up on your phone. Romans chapter 2, 1 through 16, those verses that Logan just read for us. Uh, as we're turning there, just to recap a little bit and kind of pick up where we left off in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul argued that the entire world has been corrupted by what the Bible calls the fall, Genesis 3, when sin and death entered into the world. And this sin like poison, has contaminated everything. It's, it's worked its way into every aspect of humanity. And as a result, Paul says, every human heart uh, has been touched by this and rebels against God, is prone to things like idolatry and exchanging the truth of God for lies, and is given over to all kinds of sin. And he highlights, in particular, sexual immorality, which is why we kind of paused and looked at that together. And so Paul basically is saying up to this point, look, we, we were made for a relationship with God. That relationship has been broken. And because of that, because of sin, uh, we actually deserve God's just judgment and death. And he tells us that not to condemn us or leave us hopeless. He actually tells us that because he wants us to see uh, that we need a Savior. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. Uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17 tells us that the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation. So that's the good news. But he wants us to have a clear picture so we understand that we need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And so that's where we're picking it up. Uh, he's laid this out, this kind of diagnosis of the world. And so if that's true, what Paul does now is he turns to a different question, an important question. And the, the question he wants to ask now is, okay, but what about Israel? What about Israel? If, if that's the, the, the reality that that humanity faces, what about Israel? Uh, and he's asking this because he understands that Israel occupies a unique place in human history, and that he himself is a Jew. And so he wants to know, what about Israel? He, he, he wants to know, what about this nation that's been set apart for God? What about this nation that's God's chosen people, that has this special covenant relationship with God? They have God's law, right? They have God's uh, covenant signs, circumcision. They have uh, the presence of God in the temple. And so how does this all work together? In, in a fallen and broken world, how do they fit in? 
And really, it comes to the question of weren't, uh, wasn't Israel part of God's solution, right, to a, a broken and fallen world? Wasn't Israel meant to be, uh, as the prophet said, a, a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations, that they were to bear witness to who God was and what he was like? They were to be his people. They were meant to be that. That was their call. He would be their God and they would be his people. And they, they have this call in their life, but they haven't lived into that call is what Paul is going to go on to describe. Paul is going to say, look, what's happened is something's gone terribly wrong, not just with the world, but with Israel also. And so I think if you're trying to understand, okay, how do Romans 1 and Romans 2 fit together? If Romans 1 is about what's wrong, gone wrong with the world, Romans 2 is what's gone wrong with Israel. So that's how they kind of fit together. So we're going to talk through chapter 2 and what's gone wrong with Israel. And Paul, what he does to, to help us kind of begin to think through this uh, is he kind of creates this conversation. He, he makes up a conversation partner. Uh, and this conversation he's going to have, this dialogue he's going to have is with uh, a, a Jewish opponent, we'll call them. And, and so as he's talking through this, he kind of highlights different things that he wants us to understand about what's gone wrong with Israel. And so we're going to look at that this morning, and then after we look at what's gone wrong with Israel, I want us to talk about, okay, but why does that matter? Why does that matter to us as 21st century followers of Jesus? We have Jewish members of our congregation. This is not just for them. This is for all of us who are not Jewish, Gentiles. This matters hugely for us as followers of Christ. And so we want to come to the Lord and ask, okay, what does this have to do with us? So Let's look first at what's gone wrong with Israel. So the first thing is that the people of Israel, Paul says the people of Israel have become hypocritical. The people of Israel have become hypocritical. Look at verse 1. Paul says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do these same things. So why is Paul starting here? He's starting here with his... Uh, imaginary talking partner, because I think he wants to assume that maybe if, if, if someone who was Jewish had been reading Romans 1, they might have come to the conclusion with, with Paul that, yes, that's exactly right. That is exactly what's wrong with the world. Everything you just said in Romans 1, you nailed him, Paul. You got him. I'm right behind you. Way to lay it out. And then Paul, hearing that voice over his shoulder, turns to his Jewish brother and says, not so fast. Not so fast. It's not just them that has a problem. We also have a problem. Um, have you ever heard of the Queen Mary? 1936, some of you guys are smiling. You know what the Queen Mary is. I think Langley's grandmother actually rode on the Queen Mary, if I remember. Yeah. So it's this uh, luxury ocean liner that was built in 1936. It was like the, the pride of the ocean uh, when it was made. Beautiful ship. And uh, it served a lot of different purposes over, over the course of its life, but eventually it made its way to Long Beach, California. And if you go to Long Beach, California now, it's been fully restored, and it's actually a, a hotel. You can stay on the Queen Mary uh, and have the full kind of vintage 1930s and 40s experience uh, on the Queen Mary. But what's interesting is that during the conversion from, uh, from an ocean liner to a hotel, there were these three massive uh, smokestacks, beautiful, like red-painted smokestacks that sat on the, this kind of iconic ocean liner, and they needed to repair them, so they, they took them off because they wanted to refinish them and put them back on, so they took them off, and as they took them off and they put them on the dock, they disintegrated one by one. 
Just as soon as they got them off, they, they just fell apart. And the reason they fell apart, it turns out, is because the three-quarter-inch steel plating that had been used to create these things um, had slowly over time eroded. And what actually you could see from the outside, the only thing that remained was 30-some-odd coats of paint that had been put over the steel over decade after decade after decade. So when they moved them, it just disappeared. It just all fell apart. The steel underneath had rusted away. And, and I, I love that uh, image because I think that's part of what Paul is saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters. It's what he's saying about what's happened to Israel. On the outside, you appear to be way better off than the world, than Romans 1. But let's be honest, right? We have the law and the prophets and the writing and the covenant sign of circumcision and the, and the temple. We have all those things, which is good, and they're gifts from God. And you may look at that and think you're superior to the world, but under the surface... Under the surface, things have rusted away, and that argument crumbles away, just like those smokestacks on the Queen Mary. And so Jesus actually talks about this same idea in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he hauls them like whitewashed tombs, just layers of paint over nothing. And so all this stuff that's going on has just become these layers of paint. And underneath it all, what he's saying is, you're just as broken as the Gentiles. You're just as poisoned by sin as any other person. Paul says to his people, his people, Israel, you have become like hypocrites. Because your pride in your self-righteousness before God are actually bringing judgment on yourself. In other words, Israel has no moral high ground to stand on. They can't look down on anybody else in the world, even though they are God's chosen people. Israel deserves the same judgment as the Gentiles. So Paul is delivering that hard truth right up front to his own people, to his brothers and sisters, to the people of Israel. They become hypocritical. So that's the first thing. Second thing he tells them is that Israel deserves judgment just like everybody else. Again, hard truth. He says, Israel deserves judgment just like everybody else. In verse 6 through 10, Paul says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. He'll repay. Paul then goes on to explain that those who do good and seek God will be rewarded. And those who do evil and reject truth will receive God's wrath. In other words, everybody's going to get their due. Paul says that's true for everyone, Jew and Gentile. Verse 11, he says, God shows no favoritism. That's what he means. Jew and Gentile, all the same judgment. Paul has strong words, and this is what he says. He says, verse 8, for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Those who, uh, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for Jew, then for Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Again, for God does not show favoritism. I think what Paul is, is, is wanting us to see when we think about Israel is that Israel holds a special place in human history as God's chosen people. And they have a special place because of that in God's own heart. And they do. They're called the apple of his eye. They are his precious people. And he is jealous for them. He loves them, he's not forgotten them, and he will not abandon them. 
and neither should we. We should love Israel as the Lord loves Israel, as followers of Jesus. And we should come to know, pray that they would come to know the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. There is no plan B, in other words, is what Paul's saying. There's only Jesus. There's no other way. There's no get-out-of-jail-free card, in other words, for Israel that's on the side. Again, God does not show favoritism. So Israel deserves judgment because we all deserve judgment. So they become hypocritical. They deserve judgment. And then the last thing he he points out is that everyone will be justified by works. Everyone will be justified by works. I'm going to say it one more time. Everyone will be justified by works. Um, If that makes you uncomfortable as a follower of Jesus, it should. What in the world is Paul talking about? If you've heard the gospel, if you've heard the gospel preached here anyway, uh, that sounds off. But let's look together at what Paul says. Look at verse 12. He says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. What is Paul saying? I mean, this is Paul, the apostle of grace. This is Paul who talks about what Jesus has done as being sufficient for us, not what we've done. I mean, he points to the cross and the resurrection, the finished work of Jesus. So what in the world is he talking about? This is the same Paul who in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for by grace you've been saved. Through faith, this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. Galatians 2, 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for it is righteousness. For if righteousness were through the law, he says, then Christ died for no purpose. Even later, a chapter later, Paul will say these words in Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So then how can he say what he says? That it's through works we're declared righteous or right with God. Did Paul suddenly forget grace for a minute? Did he have like brain cramp? Did uh, something slip into the Bible that's not supposed to be here? <laughs> is this an inconsistency, uh, evidence that the Bible is not trustworthy? How do, we, how do we make sense of this? So to do that, first, I want to I make two assumptions, and you could drill down on each of these assumptions in and of themselves. The first is you can make the assumption that the Bible is not inconsistent in itself, and it's actually true in what it affirms. And I think we're going to make that assumption. But that's a, maybe for you that's a live question, and you should drill down on that. I also think we want to assume that Paul is one of the most brilliant minds and writers of the New Testament and doesn't actually contradict himself one chapter later, right? So that kind of leaves us with this question of what is Paul trying to say to us? What's he trying to tell us? I think to answer that, we have to understand and remember what he's talking about kind of in this moment who he's talking to, and what he's talking about. Remember, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles and how all together they're in the same boat. Right? They're, they're all in the same boat under the judgment of God, which means 
something very important. What he's not asking here and therefore not answering here is how are we saved? He's not actually answering that question. Rather, he's asking how did we get to the place where Israel and the Gentiles are actually in the same boat? Given the story we know about Israel and what the Bible says about the Gentiles, how is it possible that Jews and Gentiles, Jews who have God's law and Gentiles who don't have God's law, how did they both get to the same place? And what hope is there? If Israel with the law is not saved by the law and the Gentiles are not saved by the law who don't have it, what hope is there for anyone? It's kind of where Paul has left us. So what Paul is saying here is that God's law, whether or not you have the law or do not have the law, is not what's key. What he says is, in verse 15, what's, what's key is what's written on our hearts. He has this phrase, what's written on their hearts. He says, you can have the law and God's truth not be written on your heart. You cannot have the law and have God's truth written on your heart. That's what he's just said in these verses. In other words, it's about the heart. And so later in chapter 2, Paul is going to say, it's not about being physically circumcised. But what? Circumcised in your heart. Not being Jewish on the outside or Gentile on the outside, but being God's people on the inside. And so when it comes to faith in Jesus, what do we get? When we come to faith in Jesus, we get new hearts. We get new hearts. Through faith in Jesus, we are given the Holy Spirit who empowers us to obey and trust God. Something we could never do on our own before Jesus. So if you didn't follow that, if I lost you at any point, uh, let me sum it up this way. In this way, Jews and Gentiles are justified by works. They are justified by the works of the Holy Spirit by grace through Jesus in them, right? So let me say that again. Jews and Gentiles have the law, don't have the law. You're justified by the work of the Holy Spirit by grace through faith in Jesus. To put it simply, we are made right with God by work. Not our works, but by works, by the works of Jesus in and through us by the power of the Spirit. We can now trust and obey him, and this is not of ourselves so that no one can boast, okay? If, if, you, if you got lost on any of that, I just want to encourage you. The good news of the gospel is that we are saved by grace and that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what we can never do on our own. That's what Paul is saying in a nutshell. Okay, so we went, we went around the block. Now we're back. All right, so here's the thing. Israel has become uh, hypocritical. All people, Jews and Gentiles, will be judged. All people, Jews and Gentiles, are justified by works. There are so many implications for what we just talked about, and I would encourage you to kind of think through them. Um, But I just want to touch on one, and and the one that I want to focus on uh, as I finish up this morning is the menace of hypocrisy. The menace of hypocrisy. Romans 2 is a warning to watch out for the menace of hypocrisy in our lives. Hypocrisy is not a Jewish problem. In other words, it's a human problem. Uh, And it's clearly a problem that God's people are not immune to and maybe even especially susceptible to. Um, So let's get a clear sense of what hypocrisy means. Uh, Here's just some ideas. It means pretending to be someone you're not. Hypocrisy means saying one thing and doing something else. 
Hypocrisy means living with a gap between what you believe on the one hand and how you behave on the other. Hypocrisy means expecting others to follow rules that you don't. In other words, we all suffer, suffer from hypocrisy. <laughs> we all do, and I think that's helpful. We just can own that. We all struggle with this. It's part of being fallen in this world, but Jesus can help us. Jesus said, actually, he, 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 he diagnosed this, Matthew 7, 3 through 5. We just read this. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to, to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus' harshest words, read through the Gospels, his harshest words were for the Pharisees. Why? Because they were hypocrites. So why is Jesus so worried about this particular problem, hypocrisy? It's because, like we already said, hypocrisy is a heart problem. It's a heart problem, and it's a gospel issue. God wants to rescue us from sin and hypocrisy because it has the power to actually blind us from our sin and the good news of the gospel. Hypocrisy has the power to blind us and others to sin. How? Hypocrisy, it blinds us because it convinces us that we don't actually need God's grace. Right? I don't need God's grace. Actually, if I'm a hypocrite, you know who needs God's grace? All y'all do. I don't need it. Everybody else needs it but me. Because hypocrisy, what it does is it tells you, I'm okay. It's other people that have the problems because I can see them. I don't have any problems. And so what it leads to is self-denial. And so what happens is without honesty, what happens in your life? There can be no confession. And without confession, there's no repentance. Without repentance, there's no forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there's no transformation. There's no healing. Without honesty, you can't be fully known. You can't be fully loved. So hypocrisy blinds us, but it also blinds others to the gospel. It's not just about us. It's about what it does to others. It blinds others to the gospel because it says to the world, look, Jesus has no real power to actually change who I am. People can smell a fraud. Right? And no matter how much we think we can fool others with our secrets and our double lives, the testimony of our lives will out us. Brennan Manning once said, the greatest cause of atheism in the world today may be Christians. Those who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door on a Sunday and deny him by their lifestyle. In his commentary on Romans, Michael Byrd lists off some challenging questions, and I just, want to, I just want to read them. These are not the only questions, certainly, but some of these like really hit me personally. And so I just want to share these because I think the Lord wants to invite us into a place of honesty with him. So he, he just says, hey, for modern-day followers of Jesus, we need to wrestle with Romans 2. We need to wrestle with this question of hypocrisy. And so he says, do you advocate for grace in your life but burden others with all kinds of rules to curry God's favor? Do you have strong opinions about things like politics and social justice while taking full advantage of, for example, illegal immigration because it's cheap labor? Do you claim to be pro-family while investing little time in your marriage and your children? Do you condemn adultery and homosexuality while watching porn on your business trips? Do you judge others for how they spend their money while you are unwilling to tithe your own? 
Remember, we're all struggling with this. This is not to point any fingers. The truth is we've all been hypocritical one way or the other. We're all tempted to acknowledge Jesus with our lips and deny him with our life. And here's the good news. The good news is Jesus is not surprised by that at all. He's not. And out of his great love for us, he wants to free us from it. The Holy Spirit sets us free from the slavery of sin to do what we could never do before Jesus, to live in obedience. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, a season when we are invited to examine our hearts and return our attention to Jesus and our need for him. And so I want to encourage us to do that, to take up this opportunity to examine our lives and our hearts and examine it in particular for signs of hypocrisy, big and small. And the invitation here is to put hypocrisy to death. Let's put it to death in our lives, in our community. Let's put hypocrisy to death. Romans 8, Paul says, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can put the sin in our life to death. That's a promise. That's empowering, isn't it? That we actually can do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. We can put it to death. John Owen, a famous Puritan, once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's only two options. How do you kill hypocrisy in your life? I think the simplest answer is you bring it into the light. You bring sin into the light. You say no to its power to pull you into shadows and you bring it into the light. You do that by naming it. You do that by confessing it to God and a trusted friend. You receive God's forgiveness and you ask the Holy Spirit to give you strength and courage to walk in freedom from falsehood. That's how you put it to death. And Jesus can help us do that. Jesus wants to free us from the sin of hypocrisy. And he will. Praise God, he will. Amen.